0: Good evening. Uh, Would you please open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 10. Uh, Before we read, uh, would you join me in prayer and ask God's blessing uh, on his word. Father God, we praise you uh, for you have spoken. We were left destitute in our sins, and Lord, you have shown us marvelous grace. You have given us your word that guides us, that illumines our path, that gives us peace, that gives us a foundation for living. Lord, I pray now that you would speak even through me, uh, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. Which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned This is the very word of God. May he write it on our hearts. One of the difficulties with preaching a one-off sermon uh, is uh, the trouble of context. And so as we go into this short passage, I would like for us to understand exactly what is happening, uh, what sort of literature this is. This is a letter, an epistle from the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. 2 Timothy is written to a son. It begins with a very familial greeting. We see in the first chapter, Paul called Timothy his beloved child. He begins admonishing Timothy, telling him that his life, Paul's life, is full of prayer for Timothy. He loves Timothy. He cherishes Timothy. And so he recognizes things about Timothy's life that stand out, uh, that he was taught from a young age, To love the scriptures, to know the scriptures, to know Christ and to proclaim him to others. He admonishes and actually encourages him uh, in his upbringing by his grandmother and his mother. And so Paul knows Timothy well and challenges him in his current ministry in Ephesus uh, in the church uh, because individuals are attacking the church. Nothing new under the sun, as Solomon says. Timothy is being encouraged to fight, to fight against evildoers, against wolves. And so this letter is a letter to a son, encouragement for strength in the midst of a fight. And so that brings us into our very passage where he says, you, Timothy, have uh, done these many things that I also have done. And so this leads us into our first point of four following faithful examples. Whenever a boy watches his dad do something around the home, he loves it. He cherishes it deep in his heart. When his dad is working at making things, like carpentry or working around the home, the son is like a little shadow behind him. Imitation is one of the greatest gauges that the Lord has given us in sonship. Sons have this natural inclination to follow their father's example. And so when Paul opens this section by saying, you have done these many things that we'll work through, he's saying, you are my true son. And he's actually encouraging Timothy in his salvation, reassuring him that Christ, through the Spirit, has done a great work in his heart. And he says seven different things. And we understand from many of the examples that Pastor David has given throughout the years that seven is a biblical number for completion. That his sonship, his example, his following after Paul and ultimately following after Christ is a complete one, a true one. And so he imitates him all the way. This leads into these my statements. You, however, have followed my teaching. What is that teaching? It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The relationship between the Apostle Paul and Timothy is described in several New Testament passages. And it's, de- it's evident that Paul played a very significant role in Timothy's life and especially in his ministry. While there isn't an exhaustive list of Timothy's specific imitations of Paul, some general themes emerge from the biblical texts that we do have. So Paul in Acts chapter 16, actually selects Timothy as a companion. And so from there, he is a co-worker with Paul in the ministry. Timothy accompanied Paul on his mini- his missionary journeys, learning firsthand about preaching, teaching, and establishing churches. And both the letters that we have received uh, by God uh, that are addressed to Timothy are all about this, all about preaching, teaching, teaching and establishing the churches, protecting the bride of Christ, nourishing her with the gospel and with the word. Paul faced many challenges and persecutions during this ministry, as we have read through the book of Acts, and as the book of Acts is also being preached in the morning. And Timothy witnessed his mentor's endurance and perseverance. So Timothy is encouraged to endure the hardship that is set before him and the difficulties of ministry. Timothy was likely influenced by this character and conduct that Paul emphasized. And so it wasn't just a matter of endurance uh, for Timothy in Paul's example, but it was actually the fortitude of the spirit in Paul's life that stood out. Timothy is instructed in matters of personal godliness to re-testify to this matter. So it's not just a matter of the fact that Paul made it through a bunch of really difficult things, and that Paul himself is someone worthy of following. But it's a matter of the Word of God implanted in Paul by the Spirit of God that has given him this miraculous endurance through the most difficult of trials that human beings could possibly go through. And so Paul, recognizing Timothy's spiritual gifts in these times encourages him to use them for the benefit of the church. Timothy is reminded not to neglect this gift, the gift of the proclamation of Christ and him crucified. Timothy's imitation of Paul was not mimicking just these external behaviors that we've talked about, but adopting that same commitment to the gospel, dedication to sound doctrine, perseverance in ministry, and above all else, piety. Godly character, Timothy learned from Paul's example and sought to apply those principles to him to his ministry. And he concludes this list of mines with a very telling uh, ending. He says, "My persecutions," and the three cities that he names here are uh, ones that stand out in the missionary journeys of Paul. In Antioch, Paul and Barnabas. Faced opposition from the Jews, and they were even kicked out of Antioch. In Iconium, they preached the word, and divisions began to happen in the midst of the people. And there was a plot to stone and kill Paul and Barnabas uh, in in Iconium. And so they go to Lystra, and in Lystra, Paul is stoned. And we know this famous story where Paul is taken to the outer wall to the gate, and he is pummeled and covered. With stones. And this example particularly concludes the list because it stands out as this powerful symbol to the value of Christ, the value of the gospel. Out of the rubble, which was meant, which was intended to bury him, he raises up in the strength of Christ and goes back into the city proclaiming. There is something that is all behind all of this strengthening and fortifying Paul. The same something that Paul is trying to tell Timothy all about. And so Timothy is Paul's true son in the faith. Not merely a reflection of Timothy's character, but a testament, again, to the transformative power of the Spirit. The letters 1 and 2 Timothy are written to remind this spiritual son of the challenges he faces, like the robber, robbers breaking in and the wolves circling the camp, emphasizing the ongoing significance of his task. It's easy in times of turmoil for him to become wrapped up in nonsense. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 2 this language of not getting wrapped up in silly arguments about things that are not of vital importance. He says that it is uh, very common for people in their youth to do this, to get wrapped up in difficult and weightless arguments that mean nothing. And so Paul, by the Spirit of God, in a resolute and truly inspired way, going to re-illumine Timothy to what this stewardship is. And for our sake, that the stewardship that is given to Timothy and all ministers is a glorious one. And so what is this thing, this something that is pushing Paul along and that he is trying to give as a means of leverage to Timothy? That very thing is, as we see in verse 15, the word of God. The word of God, and this leads into our second point, is our foundation. It is the very ground we walk on. And so the foundation of our faith, it's, it's often said by many people in the evangelical church and modern kind of progressive uh, churches that uh, they will not stand for creeds, confessions, or traditions, just me and my Bible. But here we see Paul intentionally passing something down. Scripture. Scripture is our tradition. We want, as a church, as a people, to be in line with what the scriptures teach. And so, fidelity, consistency with what the texts of God's word say, is our tradition. We have a a, a few confessions and uh, catechisms that we confess here at this church that are summarizations, faithful summarizations of the scriptures. We don't trust and rely on the traditions of men, but actually have faithfully, by the grace of God, passed down the scriptures. And so the lesson to be learned is the Christian life is only as pure as it is scriptural. And the ministry of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is only as pure as it is scriptural. Considering this truth, we must prioritize seeking the Word of God consistently week after week after week, day after day. While our church strongly emphasizes its biblical foundations, and rightfully so, I think it's important for us to invo- avoid uh, the excuse that could easily come to disengage. Instead, I think learning from the example of Paul and Timothy in the midst of turmoil, let us Actively seek the Word of God, recognizing the ongoing importance of staying connected and attentive. It's easy for us to show up to a church where the Word of God is read aloud, proclaimed faithfully, where we can follow along in the text and see that we're not just being taught some uh, mess about nothing. right? What we are being taught is the Word of God. And so it's easy for us to show up and expect some sort of mystic thing to happen to us so that when we go home, we have nothing left to do or when we're heading to church, we have nothing to do in the first place. And, But as we see here, it is necessary for us to engage with the Word of God. The Word of God is what we need, not the words of man. So we should come prepared ready to listen, ready to hear. So so what I'm getting at here is that we are very blessed that our pastors do the work. They dig into the text and take it in and walk away from it. And their sermons are faithful to the grace of God that has been shown to us in His Word. But we miss something extremely important When we leave not meditating, when we come here dull in our hearts and our minds, we miss out on something that the Lord is doing in His Word, in the proclamation of His Word. There's always this kind of idea of this Bible camp zeal uh, that a lot of me and my friends have talked about throughout the years. You go to camp and you leave on fire for Christ more than you've ever been before. Uh, And within two weeks, you're back into the ruts of life. I'm I'm not saying that that's what we need to have. We need to have something that the Puritans call sacred zeal. It's a zeal that is, it is an ember that is ever illumined, ever blown on by the means that God has established for us. And so if you show up to church without the Bible camp zeal, I, I probably would say praise the Lord because he desires for us to have sacred zeal, a meditative spirit. And so we must understand, when we come to the Word of God, what it is that we are coming to. The Word of God is our life. We would not exist without the Word of God. God made everything out of nothing by his Word. Uh, famous... Theologian Cornelius Van Til talks about this in his Defense of the Faith. He talks about how it's actually inconceivable for us to think about this idea of nothing. If you were to close your eyes and think about nothing, you would actually be thinking about something. And so there's a sense of irony for us and a sense of humility that we should have. That God made everything from nothing by his word. Ex nihilo. From His very breath. And so when we come to church, or when we go to our personal devotional times, we are approaching the Word that made all things, sustains all things, and that even is the Word of God that saved us. So chewing on that fact, that God's Word is being proclaimed, when we wake up and we're tired, remember that this is the very Word of God. We don't just say that just to make this a sentimental hour of your week. This is truly the Word of God. It's so weighty for me to be up here. Uh, In all honesty, it eats away at my stomach lining uh, all week as I prepared. But uh, I know that this Word that Made all things, sustains all things, and saved our very souls is powerful enough that even over my clamoring, it can do a great work. So the Word of God is our life. It made us born again. And not only made us born again, but it is the very sustenance of our growth. The Lord understands our frame, understands that we are weak and that that sacred zeal is not natural to us in our fallen state. But he reminds us in texts like Deuteronomy chapter 6 of a solution, of an antidote to our weakness, to our false standards. He teaches us that we should proclaim, meditate, and think on the Word of God while sitting, while lying down to rest, eating, and passing by the way. It should be so set before us that it's as if it was buckled to our forehead, written on our face. We see in the text that Timothy's mother and grandmother did this very thing for him. They raised him. They nurtured him in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They taught him what it meant to be a man of God. And they set the example of faith for him. And so they prioritized his spiritual growth creating a foundation of faith by incorporating the principles of Deuteronomy 6. And so this immediately should convict our very hearts. For how often do we walk, by the way, without the words of God in our mouths? How often do we go about our daily lives seeking rest apart from the revelation of God Almighty? How often have we decided that we are going to distract ourselves in the midst of difficulty? Distraction in difficulty is a slow death. But the Word of God is life. And so the Lord teaches us that we must think, speak, and meditate on His Word as we go about our lives. Psalm 119, verse 11, teaches us how we can do this on a day-to-day basis. It teaches us that we should hide the Word of God in our hearts. Why should we hide the Word of God in our hearts? It says that we may not sin against Him. And so internalizing the Word of God guards against sin and reinforces endurance in our lives. And so in that way, it is the foundation. It is our very life. Apart from the word of God, we would be stupefied. We would be confused. We could see the beauties of general revelation, but we would be lost. We would remain in our sins. And so the word of God operates in such a way that once we taste of it, taste and see that the Lord is good, we cannot get enough. It both satiates and creates hunger. It satisfies the longings of our hearts and actually teaches us to have new ones. And so the means of grace that we partake in week in and week out seems simple. But knowing and understanding from this text and from all of Scripture that God's Word is weighty, glorious, we need to understand that there is something underlying all of this. Uh, an example that is very helpful for me in understanding the means of grace is it works a lot like a watch, right? The Lord is working, obviously, in his uh, in His sovereign will, and so it's not like a watchmaker analogy like a deist would say, but it's like a watch. On the surface, we see just two hands moving across some sort of nice material, but underneath there is something magnificent at work. The gears are turning. The the watch is actually being brought along by what lies underneath. And so the Word of God is like that. The means of grace that God has established are like that. They look overtly simplistic on the outside, but the Lord by His Spirit is working in us something much more magnificent, something much more complex and beautiful and mysterious. And so, this is why we should interact positively, right, aggressively, offensively with the Word of God so that it may do its work. And so, the Word of God is for us, it is our very life. And we see here that Paul is admonishing Timothy, as his uh, mother and grandmother have done his whole life, to stay in the Word. And so, Fathers and mothers, grandmothers, grandfathers, this is a pointed example to all of you about what you are to do with the Word of God that the Lord has given you. You are to pass it down. The Word of God is a profound inheritance. The most valuable thing that we could possibly pass down to our children, whether biological or ecclesiological. The knowledge of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the gift of the law, these are the things that will endure. So when we understand the value of these things for ourselves, we should therefore understand the value of gossiping the gospel, telling our children and our grandchildren of the promises of God and how He has been faithful and continues to be faithful, how He has prepared a place for those who trust in Christ in everlasting peace. So while passing down wealth and homes and heirlooms is commendable, these things shall pass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. So pass it on to your children. And if your grandchildren are are far gone and you're, or you don't have children, pass it on to the younger people in the church. They need you. They need your example. The Lord has made you for this as a means. And so do not take the means of God for granted in your life. Pour into the youth. Pour into the younger couples. Teach them what it looks like to have a godly marriage. Older women, teach younger women. Older men, teach older men. And so this is what we are to do. We understand the Word of God to be weighty, so weighty that we are to pass it down to everyone that we meet as we walk, as we live. And so the weight of the Word of God presses into our hearts and is our very foundation, and so we should obey it. I feel like that's a clear consequence or implication for us. We must obey the Word of God. When God speaks, we change. It is very common for people to go into the scriptures looking for some sort of Gnostic uh, knowledge, looking to be profound in some way. And whenever they come across something that doesn't agree with their intellect, they change it. We learned uh, over the past few weeks about liberalism as it steeped very quickly actually, into the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. And it's because of disobedience, a wrong understanding of how to approach the Word of God. And so when we look at Timothy's example, the Word of God comes into Timothy's life and changes Timothy, grows Timothy. And so this is what it is meant and intended to do in our lives. But there is an imperative here that we obey the Word of God. For simply reading the Word of God without obedience is fruitless. James makes it very clear. If we just say we believe things and don't have fruits in our lives, we are untrue. We are liars. Our faith is dead. And this is the idea that uh, a lot of the Reformers have talked about over the years of improving upon your baptism. Remembering... What the Lord has done and blessed you with. So, delving into the scriptures, we acknowledge their significance. It is crucial to recognize that they uniquely stand, as our third point says, our only rule for faith and life. They are the sole rule for faith and life. Why? Why not rely on reason as the enlightenment? Has said, Why not rely on emotions? Why not have some sort of agnostic reliance on group consensus, tribe mentality? Because all of these things are sinking sand. Any conceivable other foundation with scare quotes around it that you can think of are sinking sand. They pass away like everything else, including the ones who conceive of it. But the Lord, our God, is from everlasting to everlasting. It is only the word of God that can fortify us in the times of difficulty, persecution. This truth is immutable because God is immutable. God's truth does not change for God does not change. It's God's breath to us as we see in verse 16. Conveying his message. Divine revelation reveals that since the beginning, when God spoke into the universe, he created all things good. However, in Adam, we all fell. So we have original sin. And the scriptures also teach us that we have actual sin sin that we have committed as an overgrowth of that original sin. And so. We see that all things were made good, but we are fallen. The the Word of God also teaches us of reconciliation with God in the face of that broken relationship. It teaches us that Christ is our very substitute. It teaches us that we were ever in need of a substitute in the first place. And so when Christ appears at the right time, He dies for us. And we know this. Because of the word of God. And so it is our rule for faith and life. It is not just our rule for religious matters. We don't separate the sacred from the secular. All things are sacred. For God Almighty reigns. And so we trust in the word of God. For ultimate authorship belongs to him. Particularly in the... third person of the trinity the holy spirit the word of god declares to us how we should live in the law and shows us that we are incapable of doing such things the word of god is the means by which the holy spirit pierces into our hearts and gives us new life that we may take that same law even in a day and turn around and please god because of the active obedience of christ given to us. And so as the very word of God, it is without error, trustworthy, and beneficial. If there are contrary opinions to Scripture, it is those opinions that need to be changed, not the Scripture. If if the Bible were to have blood flowing through it, if you cut it open, it would bleed truth. For God is speaking, and He Himself is truth. And so... Paul, in describing our relationship with God's Word, uses hypothetical verbs, emphasizing the imperative nature, again, of obeying, of taking in the Word of God and engaging with the Scriptures. The the way he phrases it emphasizes that there is an active involvement that is required with the Word of God. And so, this active involvement bears fruit. And that leads into the famous list of four, teaching, reproof, correction, and training. So essentially, Paul is urging believers to recognize the transformative power of Scripture and actively participate in learning for the sake of their spiritual growth. And so the Word of God exposes the weight of sin crushing us with contrition, and gives us Christ. And in doing so, it does these four things. First, it is profitable for teaching. It teaches us. Teaching involves the impartation of knowledge, instruction in doctrine. God's Word provides a solid foundation for understanding the truths of faith and life guiding believers in the ways of righteousness. It not only teaches us, but reproves us. Reproof here in in the text, it refers to the conviction of the error or the sin that is within us, or the sins that we have committed. God's Word serves as a corrective lens, exposing, wrongdoing, and convicting all of us of our need for restoration, for transformation. And it corrects us. It gives us that restoration. So it, it gives us the contrition that comes with the weight of sin on our hearts, but not only does that, but gives us correction, gives us the means that God has established for our repentance and for our restoration. It takes us from a lowly estate that it itself puts us in, and raises up all of God's people to an upright state. So God's word not only points to our errors, but also to our solution. And what is that solution? I, I think, is very important. The very solution is that we would know and walk with the risen Christ. That we would know Him. Truly in his word, that we would delve into the scriptures, understanding the value, the glory, the majesty of Christ. And that leads into the very last point that he makes that scripture is profitable in training us, training us what it looks like to walk with Christ. The process of discipline and instruction is ever present in this word for training. Paul gives. Timothy, earlier on in this book, the example of an athlete, training his body, training himself for the task at hand. And for Timothy, it is to protect and to nurture growth in the church. And so it is the Word of God that comprehensively does all of these things for us. And so it shows us that we must imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, And ultimately, see the example and the glory of the Father, for as Christ has told us, when we see Him, we see the Father. And so, if the task at hand is growth, submission, walking with Christ, what are the tools in God's Word that He has given us to do these things? And that leads us into our final section the artillery of our faith. The Word of God is not some novel pastime or Self help improvement centric literature. It's not uh, one of those things that you would see people promoting on social media. But the Word of God is a two edged sword that pierces through soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And it can do this because it's alive. The Word of God is living and active. The Word of God works in such a way that when you wield this sword it cuts you it cuts you down to your very bones it is everything we need in every age disregard whatever notion of relevance that the world tries to place on things it is relevant because it is the word of god and it is alive and it is bringing life to the dead that is its relevance it's not uh some sort of tool to build up a social media following or to have a, a cool set of lights on a stage for. The Bible is relevant in the fact that we are sinners and we need Christ. We need the guidance of God in this broken world. The word of God is not relevant because you can somehow uh, become like Thomas Jefferson and cut it up and make it useful for yourself or MacGyver it, taking the things that you like and making it into something else. No. Instead, we need to understand that the Word of God equips us for the task at hand, which is sin, the world, and the devil, the sin of our flesh, particularly. And so the Word of God, what it does is it, as it's proclaimed, as it's read, distinguishes between different kinds of people. And so in the artillery, in the quiver, in the toolbox, the Lord has given us a tool for discernment. The Word of God distinguishes between people, as we saw this morning. Christ, the very Word of God, comes like a sword dividing people for, uh, into sheeps and goats. And so uh, there's this famous quote that uh, has been said in probably a million sermons, but the Word of God works in such a way that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. So when we come to the Word of God and we see this particular aspect of it, what it does is it either softens us to the gospel of Christ or it hardens us. And so for the unbeliever, it is just judgment. It is just just retribution. But for the Christian, it is the milk of our infancy and the steak of our maturity. It equips us for every good work, for as we know, we have been saved by grace, and this is a gift. We know the famous uh, passage in Ephesians chapter 2 that says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no man may boast, but it is common for people who preach or memorize this passage to completely neglect verse 10. And I do not believe... Obviously, the Lord put it together in such a way that this is like the thrust of the actual passage. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And so... The Word of God teaches us righteousness, teaches us how to walk uprightly with our God, and it also judges those who reject it. And since there is a tendency to do this thing of neglecting the reason for our salvation in return for just our salvation, it's important for us to distinguish what are these good works and what is this man of God. So first, the, wor- the good works are the positive commands of the law. The scriptures speak well of themselves and say, the law of God is perfect, restoring the soul, sweeter than honey, than honey dripping from the honeycomb. So for the unbeliever, the word of God is like gall. It's bitter. But to the Christian, who is now able to stand and walk with God, it is like honey. It refreshes our souls like water on a hot day. Whether it be good news of the forgiveness that we have in Christ or the correction of our disobedience, the discipline of God. It is not a matter of how easy it is for us to accept the word of God, but a matter of The fact that we understand that it is from our loving Father who knows best uh, what we should do. And so, in our artillery, we have a quiver to equip this man of God. And so, we understand that the good works of God that we are prepared for in our salvation are the, the words of God, the truths of God's scripture. And so, we must distinguish who is this man of God. The man of God is first and foremost in our text. Timothy. He is a preacher and a minister of the gospel. And so he's being told what it looks like to be someone who can stand uprightly in this position. But because he too is a man like us, it is for us, the Christian. God is admonishing us, teaching us, encouraging us that we are well equipped for the good works that we have. And so this letter is a message from a son I mean from a father to a son in the faith discussing the task of the minister first and foremost and secondarily the task and responsibility of the Christian and so as we consider the passing down of this faith we must understand that it's being passed down from minister to minister first this realization should immediately prompt us to see the essential nature of the pastoral ministry uh something I thought would probably come into most people's minds is that I would love to make this point because this is the my desired field of service uh but it's not that it's just like I shared being called into pastoral ministry, it causes great anxiety in my soul because I understand from the scriptures that we are to wield the very word of God, and so he is telling us Paul or ultimately God is telling us that the pastoral ministry is something to be held in high regard as high as we hold any other sort of life-giving job so it's very weighty that he's teaching him admonishing him encouraging him in this thing and so since it's true that it's such a weighty task that the Lord our God put it in the limited amount of scriptures that we have of how to do this job precisely, and in a godly manner, we must pray, for the devil is working tirelessly to work against our ministers. So when we come to church, as we've talked about being prepared to hear God's Word, we must prepare, pray for God's Word, for preparation apart from prayer is pointless. And so I encourage you, as we go into this new year, to pray more consistently for Pastor Gilbert and for Pastor John as they come every week to bring you God's Word. Pray as you're on your way to church. Pray that that Word of God that was proclaimed to you may overcome all of our humanity and be piercing into our hearts. Pray for your children that sit next to you in the service, that no matter how young they are, that the Spirit of God would work in the nursery of God for their benefit. And so we must pray for the minister, for the minister is in desperate need of prayer. And so I hope that by the very end of all of this, we understand that the reading of Scripture and church attendance are not just mere New Year's resolutions to put on a list and toss away within weeks. Don't We should not dare put the reading of Scripture in the same list as losing 10 pounds. It is the very Word of God. And it has eternal significance. And so when we're busy and we're tired on February 2nd, find your way into the Word of God. And when you do that, the Lord promises that it will find its way into you all of your weakness, all of your infirmities will one day, with a word, be undone. And so since that God who proclaims such great promises is speaking, let us listen and let us go to Him and pray. Lord God, we praise You. We praise You for Your very Word. Lord, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Bless us, O oh God, with your very presence. And pierce us with your words. Give us grace as we go. Uh, bless us and bless our families in the new year. May we honor you and glorify you with the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, uh, even today. In Jesus' name, amen.